0: A lot has changed uh, from the time I was a child until the time now when I'm raising children. One of the things that's changed a lot is children's books. Children's books have, have come a long way since my parents read books to me when I was very little. There wasn't a lot of opportunities for great children's books when I was a kid. But now when my kids were a little bit smaller, we read to them all kinds of really interesting, creative children's books. Uh, You might have seen some of these as well. One of the ones we had was a a Christmas book that we would get out each year around the holiday season. And and in this children's book, each page had a different picture of, say, you know, a Christmas tree or or a candle or a cup of hot chocolate. And and the creative part of the book is that you could scratch the picture and sniff and get the real sense of what that tree smells like. Like super cool uh, another book was full of pictures of all different kinds of dogs dogs of every shape and size but the authors of this book had really creatively placed different kinds of fabric or string or fur or or scratchy surface on the pictures of the animals so that the child could you know um, feel what the skin of this particular dog or what the fur of this particular dog would have felt like they were tactile, right? They were aromatic. They were illustrative. They, they helped our children not just intellectually understand what these things were, but to feel and smell and, and sense what these things were. You know, the, the rituals that Hebrews has been talking about now for a couple of chapters, the rituals that we see in the Old Testament, the Levitical rituals, the worship feasts, the temple celebrations, all of those things had a similar intent to a children's book. That's what the author of Hebrews has been making a case for in the last few chapters and and today as well. A, A few weeks ago, When we studied Melchizedek, I introduced a word to you. The word was typology. And what that word means is important for Hebrews 9. The Old Testament sacrificial system, the Old Testament Levitical priestly system, which Hebrews 9 in pretty dense detail talks about, were all types. They were all types. Like a children's book, they were intended to teach the people of God, about something beyond themselves. In a sense, you could say they were sacramental. They pointed to something beyond themselves. What these sacrificial systems were intended to teach were the need all of us have for a savior, for for a final lamb who would make a once and for all sacrifice. They pointed beyond themselves. They were not ends in and of themselves. That interpretive principle is really important. For understanding this section of Hebrews, which is quite challenging, as you heard it read, you might have been thinking, what is he going to do with this one? And that is a good question. I've been trying to ask myself all week. Um, We're in the middle of one of the most extended and theologically sophisticated sections of the entire New Testament. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7, and then going all the way mainly through chapter 10, The author of Hebrews is arguing for us that Jesus Christ is a superior high priest. He is the last priest any of us will ever need. And because of that, we saw last week when Will taught that Jesus inaugurates a superior covenant, which is enacted on better promises than the old. That's Hebrews 8. And we see today that Jesus gives us a better ministry with better sacrifices, with full mediation between us and God, and, and with the ability to change us on the inside and not just on the outside. That's what chapters 9 and 10 are about. And so this week and next week, we're going to look at Jesus' superior ministry to us. His superior ministry. And, and we're going to split chapter 9, 1 through ten eighteen into three thematic pieces. Three big themes that I want you to know. We're going to look at two today and then one final one next Sunday. So here's the question that I want us to ask ourselves. Why is Jesus' ministry as our high priest better? Why is Jesus' ministry superior? And let me give you two reasons, which will be our outline for the morning, and then we'll jump in, okay? His ministry is superior because he gives, Jesus gives, pure consciences. For the guilty. And it's superior because Jesus gives true access for the defiled. So, first, Jesus gives pure consciences for the guilty. If you've been with us, you'll know that the author is just kind of picking up where he left off at the end of chapter 8. He's continuing to tell us all about Jesus' work as our last high priest. And the reason this is difficult stuff for us is because it's so steeped in Jewish Old Testament worship culture. He's just finished writing in verse 13 of chapter 8 that Jesus, in Jesus, the Old Covenant with all of its rituals is now obsolete. And then he makes this ongoing comparison in chapters 9 and 10, between the old way and the new way, between the old covenant, which is now obsolete, and the new covenant, which has been founded in Jesus. And, and one of the key themes of this comparison and contrast between the old covenant ministry of the tabernacle and the Levites and the new covenant ministry of Jesus is, listen, now the, the old covenant was only able to cleanse us externally. But the new covenant priestly ministry of Jesus Christ is able to cleanse us on the inside, to cleanse us internally, to cleanse our consciences. Look at verse 9. According to this arrangement, that is the old way, the author says, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the what? The conscience. The inside of the worshipers, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulation for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. That's the old way. But on the other hand, verse 14, Jesus' ministry is able to, we read, purify our conscience. To purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Okay, so what is the conscience? What is the conscience? Let's think about that for a moment. The conscience is our inner voice. It's our inner knowledge of ourselves. And when we use the word conscience, we're usually referring to the sense that we all have that we are answerable, right? We're answerable for the motives and the intentions and the actions of our hearts and of our lives to to God, our judge, And so the idea of the conscience that we are internally answerable to God and we know it is closely connected with another key biblical theme. And that theme is guilt. Guilt. Here's how it works. We know that we are answerable to God for who we are. And we know that we're answerable to God for what we do because we're all made in God's image, because the law of God has been imprinted into our spiritual DNA as human beings, and because we also know that we fail by our own rebellion against God, by our sin, to do what we ought as our consciences feel guilt, right? Our consciences, I think if we're honest with ourselves, feel a need for restoration. We feel a need for cleansing. We feel polluted. Um, Our cultural climate does not like the idea of guilt, goes without saying perhaps. Um, It doesn't like the idea that we feel guilt. That's really been a big cultural shift in the last hundred years. Sigmund Freud, died in 1939, and he was undoubtedly the most influential psychologist of the 20th century. And Freud, late in his life, wrote a book called Civilization and Its Discontents. Civilization and Its Discontents, it's a stellar read, trust me. Do it this afternoon. Um, Not really. Uh, In this book, Freud basically argued that that every single one of us are profoundly self-centered that we act in our own best interests all the time. And he says, in fact, we're so self-centered, each of us, that we would all destroy and plunder one another, and civilization would be impossible if it were not for one thing, guilt. The discontent that he's referring to in the title is guilt. It's the conscience Guilt, he says, is what prevents us from only, all the time, doing what we want to do, which would destroy the ability to have a culture, and so civilization exists, Freud says, because we feel bad enough about our radical self-centeredness that our conscience keeps it somewhat under control and allows society to function. That was his argument. But the downside of this, Freud says, is that we are all pervaded by guilt, that our lives are racked with guilt. So guilt for Freud, and for the 20th century really, is seen as a a necessary evil. But that was a very 20th century idea. That has changed, however. In our modern, postmodern, secularized 21st century culture, we don't like even the idea that guilt is a necessary evil. In fact, we often hear language like this, guilt is only something others place on me. And if I'm going to be my true self, if I'm going to be my authentic self, if I'm going to affirm and accept who I really am deep down, I must not let any external person or pressure make me feel guilt at all. Larry David A better psychologist than Freud in some ways, he's the writer of Seinfeld and the star of Curb Your Enthusiasm, says in an interview I listened to this week that guilt is petty crap. Guilt is petty crap. And then he says this, an artist creates his own reality. Don't tell me that I need to feel guilty. How dare you That is representative in many ways of what our culture has come to feel about guilt. So, what would Freud say to that if he were still around? I think Freud would tell Larry David and George Costanza through Larry David you are so naive. You're so naive. Um, Don't be so naive. As to think you can just express all your deepest desires. (laughs) No one has the strength in and of ourselves to really, really admit and fully express what's going on in our hearts because our hearts are so capable of evil and they're so dead set on getting what we want that if left unchecked, we would trample on everybody. I think Freud is biblical words I never thought I would say but I just said it. I, th- I think Freud on this point is biblical. We, we can't be honest about the real darkness that is there. Our consciences would, would kill us. My, my point is this. Freud echoes a biblical theme found here in Hebrews that we need to hear in our culture, and that's this. If we're honest with ourselves, all of us have burdened consciences. And it does no good to pretend that those burdened consciences only are imposed on us from the outside. Now, there is such a thing as guilt that we should not feel that's imposed on us. That's true. But that should not be the exhaustive view of guilt that we have. We all have covert guilt. That's why religion exists, by the way. All religion exists so that we can, in one way or another, deal with our covert guilt. Our covert guilt explains so much of who we are and what we do. Don't believe me? Why do you work all the time and can't stop? Why do do we numb our inner lives by medicating on food or alcohol? Why do we exhaust ourselves trying to help people? And we just can't set up boundaries, no matter how hard we try and no matter how much people tell us to. Why can we never confront people? even when we know we should? And then on the other hand, why do some of you confront people way too often? (laughs) Even when you shouldn't. Why do you agonize over the way you look? This is all covert guilt. It's all a sense of condemnation that we cannot shake. And so the question that religion asks and the question that the Bible asks, the question that Hebrews asks, is what are we going to do about our guilt? What are we going to do about our played consciences? Hebrews is saying that all of these Old Testament sacrifices were intended like a children's book to illuminate for us our guilt, to illuminate for us our need to be cleansed. But it also says that those sacrifices couldn't really in and of themselves do it. They can't do anything about our consciences. Their power is only external. They deal, verse 10, only with food and drink and various washings. Imagine how it would feel to be in the Old Testament and to go to the temple feeling the weight of your guilt. You know what? We don't have to imagine we're in the Old Testament. Some of us do that every week on Sundays. We show up feeling the weight of our guilt and we just go through the ritual. We go through the motion. We only engage externally and we leave and feel no difference. No different, because external washings and rituals was never intended to cleanse your conscience. The blood of a bull cannot cleanse you. But, Hebrews says, but the gospel says, listen, Jesus offers a better ministry. Thank you. Jesus enters, verse 11, the heavenly tent once for all and offers himself as a payment, not just for our external issues, but for our internal guilty consciences. The power of Jesus' ministry is that it's really able to cleanse us. Why? Because Jesus was guiltless. And therefore, Jesus is able, and Jesus uniquely is able, to take on our guilt And and to pay for it himself. He did this, Hebrews tells us, in the once for all sacrifice of himself. That's how much power he has. He has the power to change you from within, not just without. He has the power to to transform your hearts, not just to make you look good and impressive to others. Paul, in his letter to Titus, says something similar. Let me read for you from Titus 3. Listen to this. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by, listen to this, cleansing language, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs according to the promise of eternal life. Do you feel the need for a clean conscience? I mean, be radically honest internally. Do you feel the need for a clean conscience? What is it that plagues you, friends? What is it that follows you around like a ghost? What continually arises in your conscience and accuses you, if you trust in Jesus Christ, he silences the voice of accusation against you. He tells your guilt, shut up. Be quiet. I've done away with you because he has paid for it. You're no longer under its weight. You're no longer under its burden. Your conscience can be clean in Jesus Christ through faith. What a ministry he offers. He offers a clean conscience for the guilty. The second thing that I want to show you from Hebrews 9 is that Jesus gives true access. True access for the defiled. So we all feel, kind of subjectively, right, this guilt. That's what we've been talking about. We all feel that our consciences are unclean, that we're under God's judgment apart from Jesus Christ. But Jesus, as high priest, cleanses us by his own sacrifice. But the rest of the text is, well, it's pointing us to, really, an even larger problem, I think, uh, but a less visible one. Um, It's not just that we're guilty and need to be reconciled to God. It's that we're polluted, and God needs to be reconciled to us. Um, It's that we're defiled, and God needs to be reconciled to us. There's an objective reality to our situation as well. That's what verses 1 through 8 and 11 through 13 are, are getting at. Let me try to explain. Um, These verses are describing, you probably notice as Marianne read, they're describing in some detail the way the Old Testament sacrificial and priestly system worked, right? You can just scroll through verses 1 through 8 and see that. There were various sections in the temple, we read. And as you got closer to the center of the temple, what's called the most holy place in verse 3, or the holy of holies, access was more and more restricted, okay, And in the Holy of Holies, access is so restricted that only one person, verse 7, the high priest, could enter, and then only one time a year. And then the author sums it up there in verse 8. By this, by this old system, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, access is barred, as long as the first section is still standing. Now, why are these verses weird and hard? Here's why. If you're a regular Bible reader, which I hope you are, these verses are a bit of a struggle because they remind us of another book in the Bible that's the graveyard for every annual read through the Bible in a year plan. Leviticus. God bless you if you try to read through the Bible of the year and you get to like February 23rd. And you're like, "Eh, let's go to Romans 8 today. Take me to Psalm 23. Leviticus 18, no thank you. Leviticus, a graveyard of good Bible reading intentions. That's why these verses feel weird to us. They're very Levitical. Why is Leviticus so hard? What is it about Leviticus that's so weird? What is it about these sections of Hebrews that are so weird? Well, they're all about physical, very, very physical uncleanliness. The food that is unclean. The clothes that are unclean. I'm going to say it. The discharges and the fluids that are unclean. Ugh. Ugh. All through Hebrews. All through Leviticus. And, of course, we sense, I hope, you know, this is symbolic stuff. And it is. These Levitical rites that Hebrews is referring to, they're like the children's storybook. They're they're a living parable. Okay? They're they're a living illustration of something very important. They're a living illustration of what our rebellion against God does. Of what sin does. Here's the hard reality. Sin defiles us. Sin pollutes us before God. It makes us... um, Relationally repugnant. Is it important, by the way, if you were to go to a job interview? Please, my children and all children, say yes, by the way. Is it important that you brush your teeth before you make a big presentation at school or at work? Is it important that you not be, you know, covered with garbage and smell like the trash heap? Of course, yes. Youth, please say yes. Thank you, youth. It's so important. You don't want to go to a job interview smeared with sewage, smeared with garbage. Why? Because when you smell someone like that, right, it's nauseating. It's physically, viscerally repugnant. Think about what we mean often when we use the word dirty, to be dirty. There's dirty money, laundered money. There's, you know, dirty people when they cross the border and they have illegal drugs with them. There's dirty cops, a lot of good TV shows about that. There's dirty judges, there's dirty lawyers. It's kind of a redundancy, I know, dirty lawyers. Had to sneak that one in. Um, We know that these are sort of symbolic ideas. So, So why does Leviticus and why does Hebrews here obsess over this idea? Why do we have to be so clean before we approach God? Because it's all illustrating what God thinks of human sin. There's a sense in which there's a sense in which we're all relationally repugnant to Him. So listen, it's not just that we feel guilty and need to be reconciled to God. it's that we are guilty. We are unclean, we are dirty, and God needs to be reconciled to us. I don't think it's inappropriate to think, you know, when you're around a smell that you just can't stand, that's symbolic of how God looks at sin, and sin plagues us. God is so intensely holy and pure that Habakkuk, a verse in the Old Testament, can say, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So our access to God's purity and cleanliness is barred because we are so defiled by sin. Okay? Our way to life, our way to justice, our way to hope, our way to peace, only found in God, is shut off. It's shut off because of our corruption and our rebellion, which defiles and pollutes us. That's what all this Old Testament stuff that Hebrews is talking about is getting at. And again, those sacrifices that Hebrews talks about can't really cleanse us. No goat or bull can really purify what's polluted in our lives. They were always only pointing to the ministry of Jesus, who alone can give us true access to God. That's the point of verse 11. Look, Look at 11 with me. 11 through 14. But when Jesus appeared as a great high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's the point. Jesus, in his high priestly ministry, has reconciled us to God once and for all. He has rid us of the stain and pollution of our sin. Verse 12 and 13 refer to another part of Leviticus. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. That was the one day per year, right? In which the high priest would mediate for the people and would enter into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice to atone for sins. That's Leviticus chapter 16. Now stick with me. If you go read that, you'll see that the priest, before he's able to enter, he has to go through this entire process before he can approach. A-, a week before, a week before the Day of Atonement, the priest would have to go into seclusion and be by himself for a week and pray and ready himself spiritually. A day before, the high priest was washed three times by the other priests. And then the night before, he would enter into the Holy, Holy of Holies. The high priest was clothed in these pure white linen garments. And then he would go in every year. Now, if you have that picture in your mind, let me turn you real quickly to another part of the Bible to illustrate the point. There's a little-known prophet named Zechariah, who in Zechariah chapter 3 was given a vision by God. And in this vision, Zechariah sees Joshua, Yeshua, by the way, who was the high priest in his day. And Joshua is in the Holy of Holies, but Zechariah sees something that stunts him. His garments are completely stained. In fact, the literal word is feces. He's, he's covered in excrement, covered in, in filth. The point, of course, is that we still can't be clean enough. We still can't be purified. We're still too polluted. But then Zechariah sees something else. Zechariah 3.3 says this. The angel said to those who were standing before him, that's Joshua the high priest, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, to Joshua, the angel said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And then in verse 8 of Zechariah 3, God says this. I will bring my servant the branch. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. What we need is the branch. Because like Joshua, even when you're wearing your Sunday Day of Atonement, Holy of Holy best, you're still too polluted. And and thankfully, we have seen the branch. He is the new Joshua. Jesus has come. And, And think with me as we wrap up about what Jesus has done as high priest, to rid us of the pollution of sin. Think about it. Like all the other high priests, Jesus was secluded before he entered. He was in the garden by himself, praying with sweat so deep that it was like drops of blood, pleading with his father. But but unlike any other high priest, Jesus wasn't washed three times and given a white linen before he made his sacrifice. Now, Jesus was murdered on a garbage dump. Jesus was stripped naked. Jesus was not washed. He was spit on. All showing us that as high priest, Jesus, rather than going in his purity, takes on our impurity. He took on our uncleanliness. He took on our pollution. He was defiled for us. He was made unclean for us. Why? Verse 27, so that he could put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He takes our impurity and our pollution on himself in his death, and then he gives us the white linen. He gives us the bath we need. If you trust in him, the gospel tells us, the barrier's gone. That's why the temple curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two when Jesus died. If you connect with Jesus, your high priest, in faith, you have eternal access to God. God sees you in the purity and righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. There's no more need to fear being in God's presence. God, listen, God is not repulsed by your pollution. God is not going to turn away from you, ever. Why? Because he's already turned away from Jesus. He turned away from his only son, he, who took all the muck and the grime of our own failings for us on the cross out of love. Listen, friends, do you feel like you're always spiritually dirty? I know some of you do you feel like you can never really be clean? You feel polluted. Remember Lady Macbeth? Famous Shakespearean story. Lady Macbeth is complicit in deceit and in murder along with her husband so that he could become king. But after this heinous act is committed, her whole countenance changes. And at one of the highlights of the play, Lady Macbeth continually washes her hands, screaming out, out, damned spot. But she can't get it out. And she says, all the perfumes of Arabia couldn't cleanse these hands. I know that's how some of us feel. that There's nothing that could ever cleanse us. And you're right. (laughs) Nothing you could do could ever cleanse you. But Jesus Christ can't. And he has. He has washed you clean. Do you want to be free? (laughs) Do you want to be free of a guilty conscience? Do you want to have free access to God? Only in Christ can it be found. His ministry is able to do that for you. He asks you to trust in him and to believe that that is true, that he has the power to save. Will you do that this morning? Complete atonement he has made. He's fully paid by his death. All the debts we owe. No wrath remains for you to face. Let's worship him as we pray.